as you're turning there and as we get ready to read the scriptures together, if I can put in the code here, there it is. I wanted to remind you that we are scheduling our church picnic two weeks from today. That's in your bulletin at 10 a.m. at Ludington Park, and we've got a wonderful time of fellowship planned together. And Lord willing, this year we will get back to the slip and slide as well. So kids, come on. Well, adults too. If you're not afraid of broken bones, go ahead and bring your swimsuit and uh, you can go down the hill as well. So it will be a wonderful time. We'll be able to um, hear some, some music and sing together and, and share more of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. So we invite you to come Ludington Park, 10 a.m., two weeks from today. So we're grateful for that. Well, I can't believe we're already this close to the end of the letter of 1 Timothy. So let's stand together and we'll read verses 17 through 19 together. This is our text for today. And then we'll see, I don't know, this text may bleed over into next week. And then we'll have one more section after that. Let's read this together. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. Father, as we come back to our study this morning in 1 Timothy, and we look at these final exhortations from the Apostle Paul, we pray that You would give us understanding. We pray that You would strengthen our minds, our hearts, to receive Your Word as it is in truth, the Word of God. And Father, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would be, in work, it would be at work in us who believe. May each of us have a strong conviction that this Word is the authoritative, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. And may we come under its authority this morning and be willing to let go of worldly thinking and worldly actions and run to Christ, confess our sin, be amazed at His constant forgiveness and grace, and then, Father, give us the strength to live differently to think differently so that we may be what you have purposed and called us to be as your household, the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, the Son, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And please don't be confused by the wrong reference at the top of this text that you see on the overhead it is 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. I have to say to you that as we've studied through 1 Timothy, there is more about money in this letter than what I anticipated. And 
that's so important for us as the body of Christ. Because it's certainly true that one of the most important areas of our behavior as members of God's household is how we think about and use the money that God provides to us, our resources. So Paul returns to this theme in our text this morning, and we're certainly not going to pass over it. Let's dig in deep together and see what God has to say to each one of us. I want to remind you of the purpose statement of this letter, and if you would, please just turn back with me a couple of pages in your text to chapter 3, and you'll remember why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3 verse 14 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, here it is, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. By the grace of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, you have been brought into the family of God. You are the household of God. And he also calls us here the church of the living God, the living God of heaven and earth, the universe created by Him. He lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of God lives in us, and if God is our Father through the new birth, wouldn't that affect the way we live and think? It must. It affects the way we think about everything. It affects the way we respond to that truth and how we live it out. And so, if God's household is who we are, then it will affect how we also think and use our money as His children. Now, sadly, professing Christians often often separate their understanding and handling of money from their life in Christ as children of God. We think, well, money, that's, that's just a regular thing I do in the earth. It doesn't have anything to do with my relationship with God. It has everything to do with it, according to the Apostle Paul. Everything in our lives, nothing excluded, must be lived out according to our new position of Christ. So the question we could ask ourselves as we come to this text this morning is, do we think about money, do we handle money, resources, like children of God or like the rest of the world? Have you made those connections in your, in your thoughts? Has the, the Word of God built those connections in your mind between how you think about and handle money and your identity as a child of God? How we think about money, how we use money is a direct indication of the maturity or immaturity of our faith and our progress in Christ-likeness. And how we think about money and use it is a direct indication of what we value most. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Remember Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, it's interesting. We read a text like that, and as we read it, it seems so foreign to us, doesn't it? If you're honest, that text does not govern how we handle our money all the time. It seems so difficult to understand and practice. And maybe that's the point. How do we as children of God 
need to learn to think about these things and understand them and ask the Spirit of God to work them out in our lives. And the more often that I, than I expected, again, I said the Apostle Paul addresses this area, and that's what he's going to teach us this morning from this text. Really, he's going to teach us how to store up treasures in heaven. And Paul gave us ample resources here in the letter of 1 Timothy to think about that. Just remember with me for a moment what we've already talked about. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, Elders of the body of Christ must not be lovers of money. Unfortunately, I know we, we turn on the television and see so many ministries across the United States and it is blatantly evident that the leaders of the religious organizations that call themselves churches are in love with money, right? 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons, he says, must not seek money dishonestly. 1 Timothy 5.3-16, the Apostle Paul instructs believers how to provide for true widows in their church and in their extended families. In fact, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul really brings a a very uh, urgent charge and command to believers to provide provide skillfully for diligent elders. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 5, then, we see that false teachers, which we referred to already, use religion or the forms of godliness, the external forms of godliness to acquire money in order to gratify their own sensual desires. It's entirely backwards, right? They use godliness, religious forms, to heap to themselves money to satisfy their own worldly desires. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10, through 10, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we have great gain if we have godliness and if we have contentment with the provisions of our basic necessities, with God's provision to us of our basic necessities, which are what? Food, clothes, shelter over our heads. 1 Timothy 6, then 17-19, Paul tells us how we should think about money and what we should do with money. Now, this text is addressed through Timothy directly to believers who are rich. Notice the first phrase in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. And he's talking about believers who are rich. Believers in the church in Ephesus that the, the, the missionary Timothy, if you will, is overseeing. And the question that should come to our minds as we read verse 17 is, what? Who's rich? Right? That's what you're thinking right now. Who's rich? Am I rich? Is he rich? Who is this text for? And so I want to help us with that before we go anywhere else. The word rich in this text simply means abounding in material resources. If you looked it up at a Greek lexicon, that's what you see. Abounding in material resources. So in other words, to have resources above and beyond what is needed. Here's the catch. How far above and beyond what is needed, Paul doesn't explain to us. What do we need? uh, What what do we need? Again, according to Paul in verse 8, remember? Food, clothing, roof over the head. Food, sustenance, clothes, shelter. Now, how many of us have more than what we need to sustain our lives and shelter our bodies? If you have more than what you need, would you raise your hand? (laughs) Okay, right? Nearly all of us. 
So this is a very, little bit of an interesting text. Who does this apply to? So maybe in one sense, all of us fall into the category of rich. We certainly do not know the poverty of many first century Christians, nor do we know the poverty of Christians in other places in the world, do we? I mean, are you praying for God to provide lunch for you today? No, I think you probably already got it in your plans, in your, in your storehouses. But we don't go uh, from day to day pleading with God for those kinds of things, or even a pair of shoes. We, we, we're not walking around in bare feet. But here's the big point. Whether Paul has in mind someone who is wealthy according to the standards of, of their specific economic culture, that, that could be one way that he's defining this, what, whatever is rich according to your own economic culture, or simply someone who has more than what they need, I think all of us can, should, ought to embrace the exhortations, the mindset, the truths that, that Paul is communicating in this text as we think about money, as we use money as the children of God. I want you to also notice here that, that the Apostle Paul is not condemning wealth. It's not wealth that is inherently evil. What does he say is evil in previous verses? It's the what? The love of money. It's not having money. He doesn't prescribe to us here, I don't think anywhere in the Scripture does it prescribe to us an ascetic lifestyle or that we all should become monks, right? That's not what the Scriptures teach us. There's no inherent spirituality in being either wealthy or poor. Both stations, notice this, both stations, Paul said, he personally experienced and knew how to navigate each one of those stations with contentment and to use his stations for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Remember Philippians 4, 11-13. Listen, Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned what? In whatever situation I have to be content. I know how to be brought low. He's talking about poverty. I know how to abound. He's talking about having more than he needs. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And that's where verse 13 comes in. What? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So if the Lord has you currently in a place of need, don't love and crave money so that you will live by the desire to get rich. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and seek to do His will. And if the Lord has you in a place of wealth, Neither love your riches nor seek to be poor as if it is a sin to be rich, but use your wealth according to the will of God. That's what Paul is instructing us in this text. So the main idea that if I could summarize this whole section for us, I'd say this, because we are members of God's household, see I'm connecting it with the main idea of the letter, we're members of God's household, so then let us think about and use money in a way that honors our Heavenly Father. Here's the question, really, that we need to ask as we begin to look at this entire text. How should, then, we think and act in our dealings with money? That's the question that Paul answers. How do we do that? How do we think and act in our dealings with money? Number one, two, two points, and you can see them in your outline this morning, first of all. Attitudes to avoid. This is verse 17. There's some attitudes to avoid. Notice that first of all, Paul brings in these, 
there's this, this prohibition of attitudes to avoid by using that same word we've discussed several times. Remember, it's a charge. Do you remember what that is? It's when you receive an order, a command down from a superior officer, passed down, rank to rank, and now it's in your lap. And so what Paul is doing there by using that word is he's reminding us that this, these commands, these exhortations come with authority. And whose authority do they come with? Christ's authority. And so we receive them as such. They must not be disregarded. And so the first thing that Paul commands or charges the, the rich in this present age is not to be haughty. Not to be haughty. In other words, letter A, haughtiness with money. Pride. Haughty. What is that? High-minded. Lofty thinking. Esteeming yourself in your own mind as superior to others. You know, in our society... Wealthy people often draw an equal sign between cash value and personal value. Have you found that to be true? And not even wealthy people do that. It's just part of the nature of our society. We think that wealth equals value. Personal value. We tend to think that wealth equals God's favor and blessing and, personal, and it equals personal righteousness. How often have, have people, even in this last you know, a couple of weeks where Roe versus Wade has been overturned, where people have said, well, now God can bless America. And what do they mean by that? Material prosperity. Is that God's blessing? Not necessarily. It might be, but not necessarily. We have to get that out of our minds that wealth equals God's favor. In fact, Asaph, when he wrote Psalm 73, he said just the opposite. He said that wealthy people are, are, are full of, of, of fatness and prosperity and it's padding them from reality. And he was jealous of them and envious of them until he considered what? Their end. And he knew that they would be without God in eternity if they did not turn to him. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said too? How difficult it is in fact, he said it is impossible with man for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They don't necessarily feel their true spiritual condition because their physical condition is so comfortable. So we have to get that out of our minds. And that will help us with being haughty with money. Is We can't think that wealth equals God's favor or blessing. In fact, in, in, the, early, uh, in the days of the church, in, in, in Jewish Mindset as well, that was very much a temptation that if, if we had money, then we must be righteous before God. No, that is not the way it works with wealth in the truth. We sometimes think that wealth equals being smarter, more diligent, better looking, wiser, more capable, more responsible, more educated. Is that true? No, that's not true. In fact, Proverbs 28 Verse 11, I would like to read that to you. Proverbs 28, verse 11 says, A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. Is a very interesting comparison. Again, putting away the mindset that wealth equals personal value. 
In fact, what does James teach us? In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he comes and he exhorts the church when they see a wealthy man and a poor man coming in and they treat the wealthy man with partiality and they ignore or treat poorly the poor man. He says, no, is, is, our, is our wealth determining our personal value? Of course not. We tend to think that our personal value, our, our worth and importance is indicated by the value of our assets. And Paul commands rich believers to avoid such foolishness. In our society, we could also go on to say that, that wealthy people often deal arrogantly with those who are less well-off in order to get what they want. Money is often used as a power play by a person in order to acquire whatever they think they deserve or are entitled to. And when they don't get their way, they treat others condescendingly at best and drive them like cattle at worst. And the truth is, is that money is neither an indicator of personal worth nor a means to personal fulfillment. The Scriptures make that clear. So this is, this is Paul's exhortation to us. If we think that way, then we are entirely wrong and with a worldly mind concerning wealth. And so Paul commands rich believers to avoid that foolish way of thinking. We cannot draw an equal sign between wealth and personal worth. God has an entirely different purpose for allowing believers to become rich, which Paul will explain in the next verses. Now, the second attitude that Paul commands us to avoid here is hoping on money. Notice, he says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Again, we are convicted in this text. In our society, not only does money equal personal value, but money also equals personal security and satisfaction. Do you think that way? This is the message that we're given constantly. Our society has invented so many different avenues of hoarding money in the pursuit of feeling security and satisfaction. There is no cap on the amount of money to be saved in the pursuit of feeling of the feeling of security and satisfaction. Have you thought about that? We, we all try to save some money for when things come difficult, but how much is enough? What's the cap? Have you noticed the feeling of fear, anxiety, panic that has set in upon us in recent months with the threat of a looming economic disaster? And have you noticed how the immediate response to that fear is what? Hoarding resources. This is the thinking and behavior of a society that does what? Sets their hope on money for security and satisfaction. Now, I'm not about to tell you how much money you should have, have or, uh, or how much you should have saved or, or what kind of insurance you should have, but consider this question. If you did not place any hope for security, or satisfaction in your money or your assets, if you didn't place any hope for security and satisfaction 
on your money and your assets, how much would you have or save then? Isn't that an interesting thought? That, that, that kind of plagues me a bit. I'm not, I'm not teaching you this text this morning because I've got this text right. I'm sitting next to you under the scrutiny of this text and feeling what you're feeling. How much would you share then for the advancement of the kingdom of God with other people if you didn't set your hope at all on your money or your assets? Paul gives us an outright command here. Do not set your hope on riches. Now, before we move into the next verses, we need to notice the powerful truths and reasons Paul gives us to avoid such attitudes when we have wealth. Why shouldn't we be proud when we have money? Why shouldn't we set our hope on wealth for security, for satisfaction? Why shouldn't we? Well, there's a couple of things you need to notice in this text. First, he says, the rich in this present age... And I want you to also notice that he's calling us not to set our hope on what? The uncertainty of riches. That that is so instructive for us. And we know this is true. Money only lasts as long as the present in this present age. Right? It is absolutely uncertain And therefore, do not find your value or place your hope in such things. You think about that. If you find find your value in things that are only bound to time, if you find your security in things that are only bound to time, you have misplaced value and hopes. You need to anchor your value, your identity, your security in things that last forever. That's what he's calling us to do. See, money is only for now. Remember 1 Timothy 6, verse 7? Look at it. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. We go from naked to naked. Remember? We talked about that. Like Job, naked I was brought into this world, and I'm going out naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This money is only for a short time in this very temporary world. You're not taking any of it with you. Not any of it. And money is totally uncertain. Proverbs, again, Proverbs has so many powerful, pithy little statements that help us to think rightly about these things. Proverbs 23, verse 5 When your eyes light on it, talking about money, about wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's what happens to money. Isn't it? I mean, ask the guys in 1929 who had poured all their assets into the stock market, right? Gone in moments. And because they set their hope in it, what they do? They jumped, right? That's, that is the, that's the ultimate consistent end of setting your hope on money. Think about the man in Luke 12, 13 through 21.
Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Hey, does that kind of argument ever happen today? But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to him, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's the greater concern in those kinds of arguments, isn't it? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his what? Possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose shall they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's what Paul's saying here. Money only lasts as long as the present. It's absolutely uncertain, and therefore do not find your value in it. Do not place your hope for security in such things. And then he goes on to give us an even more wonderful statement. Place your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is the one, the only one who provides us with what? Everything. Find your value in God. Set your hope on Him. This is an inestimably important principle. And it's so hard to grasp. It's, it's, we could say it this way. Set your hope on the giver, not on His gifts. And doesn't that make sense? Why would you set your hope for security and satisfaction on stuff that's going to be gone in a few moments when you have God and you can just set your hope on Him, knowing that He will provide for you everything you need for this life. That is freedom. Oh, if I could grasp that 24-7. Live with that hope all the time. God alone is the one who provides us with everything, including wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a text that talks about this. Let me just give you a few Old Testament references that affirm to us the truth that we do not acquire any of it for ourselves. But He is the one who gives us the ability to acquire wealth. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, there's the haughtiness, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. 
Oh, this is such a rich text, isn't it? If you want to get God's mind on wealth, look, t- spend some time in Deuteronomy 8. It's unbelievable. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You hear what God is saying to his people there? I fed you day after day, 40 years, bread on the ground in the morning. And now you're going you're gonna to put your hope in riches and say you got this for yourself and be proud. What are we thinking? God is the one who gives us everything. Let me give you two more texts to think about. First Chronicles 29, 10-13 says the same thing. First Samuel 2, 7, the same thing. And so knowing this ought to greatly humble us because if we can look at the, you, you pull up your computer and you look at your bank account and you see you know, your, your IRA and your savings account and your checking account, and you're like, wow, God, wow, this is great. You shouldn't think, well, I got that for myself. You should think, God put every penny for that in my account. He's given this to me. This is from Him. And so that takes away all ground for pride because what is it all but a gift? That's good theology for wealth. That's what Paul's saying to us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do we have that we have not received? Isn't that true? When you, think of, when you, when you work out your theology and, you, and, you, and you, you begin to understand what you deserve and what you should have, and yet where you are and what you do have, you think it's, it's all because of God. And knowing this ought to cause us to transfer our hope from money to God Himself or from the thing given to the giver Himself. Can't we do that? We want to feel secure because there's a lot of earthly things around us. And God says, you can be just as secure if all of that was gone. Why? Because you have the giver as your father. We've got to get that. We've got to get that. That's how Paul could be content, whether he was in abundance or he had need. And that mind change brings us to true security, no matter what the circumstances we experience. That's how you can endure a big drop in your assets and still be okay. You know, Matthew 6, 22-33, you know your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask it. You know that He will supply you with all the things you need for life as you seek first His kingdom and righteousness. Matthew 6, 22-33, Philippians 4, 10-20. My God shall supply, what? All your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And that mind change then not only brings us true security then in this life, but it brings us a true freedom to use our wealth as God has purposed us to. Do you see? That's where the freedom comes from. To, to give to others, to advance God's kingdom and righteousness, rather than to hoard our wealth in that pursuit of a false sense of security and satisfaction. We're free to give because we know that God supplies. We're free to give because our security is not in what we are giving away. We didn't just give away our security, but our security is in the one who gives us all things. 
things. 2 Corinthians 9.8 talks about this, that, that God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you can abound to every good work. Now, understanding that wealth is given by God enables us to enjoy it as well. Notice how he says this. We rely on God. We're, we're setting our hope on God who richly, no, just, just notice those words, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You can't enjoy wealth until you know it's from God. Not really. Because we know that wealth is a gift of His grace. We don't deserve it. We deserve eternal judgment from God. And yet, through Christ, He gives us life. Through Christ, He gives us sonship. Through Christ, He calls us His friends, His servants. And He gives us all the provision that we need to do the works that He has called us to. We look to our Heavenly Father. We know that He is good and generous. And we give Him thanks as we use what He gives to us to do His will and seek His glory. That's true enjoyment of wealth. Enjoying and glorifying the giver of wealth as we use it for His glory. Now, let's move to the second point this morning. If we know those things, if we know that God provides us richly with all things to enjoy, if we set our hope on Him, then, then how will our behavior change? Not only our thinking will change, but then how we handle our wealth will change. And that's where Paul moves on here in verses 18 and 19. Notice, the rich in this present age are then charged to what? They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Again, I underscore the fact this is a charge, not optional. This is what God has called us to do. But I think it's also helpful for us to notice that these four commands, do good, be rich in good works, generous, ready to share, those four things are really not four different actions, but they are four different ways of looking at the same action, the same purpose of life that God, that uh, Paul calls the wealthy Christian to. So first, let's just notice them briefly here. Do good. This is the most general description of that exhortation to wealthy Christians. In other words, take your wealth and seek to do good with it. Things that are noble, things that are honorable, excellent. Don't take your wealth and spend it on worthless, selfish, empty, meaningless, worldly pursuits. Do good with your wealth. This is what God has given it. This is why God has given it to you. And then he, call, he, he kind of uh, puts another layer on doing good with it, and he says, be rich in good works. Of course, the New Testament is rich with the content of good works, right? That's a word you could trace in the New Testament. Good works. And so this must be the life of the wealthy Christian as well. They're to live their lives exactly opposite to the ambition of the false teacher. The false teacher uses the forms of godliness to multiply wealth in order to satisfy their own sensual desires. The wealthy Christian is to use the wealth that God has given to them to multiply good and godly works for the good of others and the glory of God. Remember Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and then begin to glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or Ephesians 2.10, 
God has made us His workmanship, and He's crafted us to do good works, which He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Acts 9.36 talks about Lydia, who used her wealth to do good works for others. There's many texts that talk about this. Titus 2.7 and 14. Titus 3.8 and verse 14. But here's the point. What are, what are good works anyway? Why, what, what does the Bible mean when it says good works? Well, I'd like to define it this way. Doing the good work of serving the real needs of others. Doing the good work of serving the real needs of others, whether physically or spiritually, for their good. And here's the, here's the ultimate purpose. For the advancement of the gospel and for the glory of God. You see, I'll say this again. I said it a few weeks ago. Good works are all about doing good deeds in order to spread the good news. Right? There's, there's no ultimate purpose for just going out and, and being nice to people, whether in the body of Christ or in the community. The goal is to do those good works in order to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the pattern of the New Testament. That is so important. I mean, what good is it if we make someone else's earthly life more comfortable and yet they die and go to hell? Is that purposeful? That's cruel. No, I must give them something to meet the needs of their body. Yes, but then as I do that, that's a door. That's just a means to the greater end of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That's the point. That's the point. That's where the wealthy Christian makes their true spiritual eternal investment to use their material wealth to be rich in good works. That's, that's what Paul is calling them to. And as they do good and are rich in good works, they are to thirdly be generous in that pursuit. Be generous. Yeah, he's talking about the same thing. They're generous. What does that mean? To be good at imparting. Liberal in the positive sense of that word. Ready to distribute, to give freely. Let me read to you a few Proverbs on this as well. I, I really am struck by these Proverbs. The first one, Proverbs 14, verse 21. Listen to the Word of God. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Or verse 31, whoever oppresses the poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors his maker. And, and then Proverbs 19 and verse 17, whoever, I like this one so much, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Isn't that such an interesting concept? Giving to those that God brings you to meet their needs is like giving to the Lord, and he'll give it back in some way, at some time, on some level. And it's interesting because God gave us this in the first place. It's amazing. Those members of God's household to whom he granted wealth are to be generous with that wealth. In fact, I want you to remember also Romans 12. This is very interesting. We're so quick to talk about spiritual gifts like teaching 
or serving or you name it. But then we get a little uncomfortable when we think, you know what actually a spiritual gift is? Giving. Isn't that something? Notice Romans 12, verse 7. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You know, it's really funny to think about. How many of you over the course of your life in the body of Christ have either asked someone or been asked by someone to exercise a spiritual gift? Like, hey, would you teach this class? Hey, would you serve this person? Would you see if you could help them with this in their season of illness? Would you please lead this, whatever, this, this outreach or, or something? But how many of you have had someone come up to you and say, or maybe you have asked someone else, you know, I've noticed that the Lord has granted you the spiritual gift of wealth, would you please give your money to this? That's like, that doesn't work for us, does it? Why not? That's, this is what it means to be part of the family of God. Those members of God's household to whom He gives wealth, that's purposeful, that's spiritual, that's eternal. And He God has plans to use them for good works. And then the last word, to be ready to share. This is, this is a really amazing word, and it's one of those words that those three words, ready to share, are actually one word in the original language. And it's one of those words that only appears once in the New Testament. But it is, it's a special word, and it's derived from the word fellowship that we talked about last week. You, you've heard that, maybe that Greek word before, koinonia, right? This fellowship. And what does that word fellowship mean? It means to have in common, to share the same things, to have intimacy, to be united. And so this word, ready to share, is, is a word that means ready and able to form and maintain communion and fellowship with people. And to be inclined, this is amazing, to be inclined to make others sharers in one's possessions. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, what? What's mine is yours. That's the idea. That's how Christians who have wealth should live. What's mine is yours. That's this, ready to share. Exactly. And we see that lived out so skillfully in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. And I'll just refresh your memory on those verses. Acts chapter 2 Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, listen, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Here's the same idea. Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Here's, here's the, the idea of ready to share. And no one said that any of the things they, that belonged to him was his own. 
That's, that's amazing. And they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That is something. That's what that means. Paul takes this and he says, if God has sovereignly granted you wealth, he did that from his own hand. Don't place your security in that. Don't place your satisfaction or your your personal sense of value in those things. He gave it to you to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to share it. And now Paul advances, is the last section here, he advances further reasons for such sharing and generosity for good works from Christians with wealth. Why then? Why should Christians with wealth live this way, so radically different from the world around them? Why? And he says in verse 19, thus, in this way, by living this way, what are they doing? They are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That's the first thing. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. In other words, one, one uh, teacher said it this way, they amass a treasure for themselves, a sound and good fund for the future. And where is that sound, good fund? In heaven. That's what he's talking about. This is, again, the same thing Jesus said. Lay not up yourselves treasures on earth, but use your wealth that God gives you in this life to store up treasures in heaven. Worldly investors counsel the wealthy to invest their riches into various earthly things that will cause the value of their wealth to remain sound or, better yet, increase by the standards of earthly markets so that they can what? Purchase more earthly possessions and and earthly experiences in their pursuit of earthly security and satisfaction and success. But according to the, the Apostle Paul, that counsel in itself, would be extremely an unwise investment because earthly investments last only as long as this earth lasts. That's why. Which is a very short time. All earthly investments will pass away when this earth is burned up at the second coming of Christ. When a wealthy man dies, he will enter eternity with no more earthly wealth than the poor man, right? They'll be the same. But the wealthy Christian, even though he may use earthly investments to temporarily steward his resources, his ultimate goal for his wealth must be to invest in the storehouses of heaven, which will indeed last forever. And so here's the question that we're thinking now. Well, What does that mean? Store up treasure in heaven. It sounds so illustrative and analogous, right? But where where is, I need some cold hard cash here before my eyes. How do I do that? How does a person invest in the storehouses of heaven? Well, before I give some sort of a simple answer, I have to say I don't have this figured out, right? I don't have this nailed away. I invite you, as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, 
to think about this text with me over the next weeks. How do we do this? But here are some things I think that I know. The simplest way I can explain storing up treasure in heaven by the, by the investment of earthly wealth is using your wealth to accomplish good works that will prepare men, women, boys, and girls to enter eternity. That, that's how I think about it. Using your wealth to accomplish good works that will prepare men and women and boys and girls to enter eternity. And that's what Paul means by the connection between verses 18 and 19 where he says, you can do these good works and in this way, thus, by doing this, you store up treasure for yourself. And I think that you can do that by more mundane things than maybe we realize, like providing for your family, right? Investing in your own family. Why, though? That's the thing. You have to take your wealth and make connections to eternal purposes. Why do you provide for your family? Is it just so they have earthly stuff? No, it's so that you can love them well and shepherd their heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see? That is using wealth to store up treasure in heaven. Provide for your family well. In fact, doesn't Paul, didn't he already say that in chapter 5? He says the one that doesn't provide for his family is what? Worse than an unbeliever. And you can do this by meeting the needs of others beyond your own family like he's already talked about in chapter 5. And for whom God gives you that special desire by doing good works for their good, but also doing what? Using those good works as an opportunity to give them good news. That's storing up treasure in heaven. You're investing. You're letting it go. You're letting the wealth that God has given to you go to some degree so that you can give people the gospel. You can do that. You can store up treasure in heaven by investing in the proclamation of the gospel nearby and around the world. That's what we live for. And in the end, the investment of your earthly wealth will result in God using that wealth and the words that you've given or sent to bring men and women and boys and girls into His eternal kingdom. See, that's the thing, right? We're living for the next life. We're living for eternity. This earth is so short. This life is so short. That indeed is a sound fund for the future. And it won't, it won't go away. You will have that joy and crown to see those whom God used you to bring in to the kingdom of God. That's Paul's charge to wealthy Christians. And I'm sure there's more ways to think about and apply it. And maybe that's what we can discuss in the weeks ahead together. That also is like Paul said, what it means to take hold of that which is truly life. If you grab hold with, you, with all the money that you have and all you can to the things of this earth, what are they going to do? They're going to go right through your fingers. But if you use the wealth that God gives you for good works leading to the gospel for others, that you're going to hold on to for how long? Forever. So because we are members of God's household, let us think about and use money in a way that honors our Heavenly Father. In closing this morning, let me give a final word to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want us all, again, I exhort us all to take some time to prayerfully think through this text. Do we think like this text? 
do we live like this text? And I think the first thing that we come to is that we fall so short. If you're like me, you fall so short. And we come before our Heavenly Father and we, we confess, Father, forgive me for, for setting my hope in stuff and seeking my satisfaction in stuff. I, I have you. You're my Father. How, how dishonoring is that? And you know what? The Lord Jesus forgives and cleanses, right? Doesn't he say that? If you confess your sin. He's faithful and righteous to forgive and cleanse. You have the righteousness of Christ, brothers and sisters. So you don't need to despair in those thoughts. You, you confess it for what it is. You, in a fresh way, embrace the forgiveness and grace of God. And then by that strength and confidence that the Spirit of God gives you, you do seek to think differently and live differently according to His will. The Spirit of God will enable you. It's His will for you. And may we learn to calculate the eternal impact of our, of our earthly purchases. Let, let our prayer be that prayer by Francis Ridley Havergal. Remember that one? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow with ceaseless praise. Remember verse 4. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power is thou shalt choose. Last verse, take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. I want to say a word to the young people here. Everybody who's younger than, I don't know, 18, I want you to look at me for a moment. I want to say something to you about this too. You know, your parents are teaching you to work hard, aren't they? They are. Various tasks and things around the house that sometimes become burdensome to you. Do you know what this is? Do you know what work is? Work is such a tremendous blessing because it enables you, by the grace of God, to gain some money. You know why? So that you can give it away for the kingdom of God. I hope that motivates you to work hard. I want to work I want to work as soon as I can and as God enables me, my parents let me, so that I can have something to give away. In fact, that's the instruction that Paul gives, not necessarily to young people, but to thieves. He says, let the thief who stole stop stealing. Instead, let him learn to do what? Work with his hands. Why? So that he has something to give to those who are in need. Let that be your motive to begin to work hard as a young person, or at least to want to and to pray about it. Think about that. And, and God will lead you into good works that He has planned for you. If we're God's household, do you not believe, this is for all of us, that God will provide everything that we need to accomplish all of the good works that He's planned for us to do? He sure will. He's a good Father. He's our, we're His children. So let's trust Him with the wealth that He entrusts to us and use it according to His will and for His glory. I want to give one final word before we pray to my friends here who may be yet unbelieving. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Are you confident that you are forgiven, that you're a child of God because of what Christ has done for you? If you're not, I want to say this to you. Please listen to me. Money can keep you from Christ. Did you know that? Money can keep you from Christ. And again, that's where Jesus said, it is easier, 
for a rich man to go through an eye of, rich, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he wasn't, that, he's talking literally there. How, how possible is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's not, right? And he said, it's easier, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why did Jesus say that? Again, like we said earlier, because when we have so much stuff in this earth and we heap to ourselves bills and bills of satisfaction and we hoard it for our own pleasure and security and success, very often we do not realize how spiritually impoverished we are. And that's the only way to come to Christ is to realize that when you stand before God, you have nothing but your sin and that will damn you. And that's why Jesus came. God is also merciful. He wants to give you the riches of Christ, the riches of Christ's righteousness to cover you when you stand before God so that you are welcomed as a child in his own dress. He wants to take your sin and your guilt and put it on his own son on the cross and remove all of your punishment. But you will never come to Christ until you feel your need for him. And sometimes wealth can keep you from feeling that. So I urge you this morning, don't look at wealth as your eternal safety. Look to Christ. See what the Scripture says is your true condition and turn to Christ. And then use the gift that God has given you in gratitude for Him and for His glory. Ah, this is so important. And you know what? Here's the thing that Christ said in that same parable. He said it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then the disciples answered and they said, well, then who can be saved, right? But what did Jesus answer after that? Yes, it's impossible with men, but with God, what? All things are possible. See, God saves anyone he wants to. He works through and he cuts through into their heart and helps them to see the truth so that they can be set free. Let's stand together. Let's, let's pray to our Heavenly Father. Father, we, we come to this text realizing how far short we fall of thinking like this and living like this. Father, we look at so much in the book of Acts and, and we see how the apostles taught the early church to live and it seems so foreign to us. Father, teach us. You are the one who gives wealth. You are the one who gives all money. Teach us to trust in you instead of it. Teach us to rest in you and teach us to use it as your church, to use it as you would have us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to lead and teach us. And I pray this morning that if someone is hearing these words from the Scriptures and they have been convicted that they are not yet your child through faith in Jesus Christ, that they will come and truly feel their true need of you in spite of their earthly wealth. wealth, And that they will trust in Christ and find true spiritual riches in salvation. We ask this for your glory and for the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.